next week we will be back here at 10 a.m. And so if you show up here next week at 5 p.m., the doors will be locked, no one will be here, and um, you'll miss out on the food we're going to have, the special speaker we're going to have, just the day of celebration that we're going to have next week. So make sure you're here next week at 10 a.m., set your alarm, come out, and we have these little invite cards, they're on your chair, we've been giving them out for a couple weeks, invite somebody. Darby and I were at the Apple store the other day, started talking to a guy, and got into a good conversation. We said, hey, come out to our uh, one-year celebration. He was like, awesome, thank you. We've been in restaurants where we start talking to our waiter or our waitress, and uh, we're like, let's give him a really good tip, and we're gonna leave this little card for him because we've built a good relationship here. So take this, invite somebody you know, invite somebody you just encounter. I've invited some of my friends I hang out with, and we play, bunch of geeky board games and card games and video games and I'm like guys come out come out to our one-year celebration and some of them are like yeah I'm gonna do that and so you never know who's gonna say yes uh, if you actually take this card and invite somebody so uh, I did want to take a minute before I started my sermon I'm ready to jump in but before I do that uh, tomorrow will be the one-year mark of our church being an official existence with weekly services so I wanted to just take a moment before I preach and pray, and I invite you to pray where you are alongside of me. If you're watching online, pray with me. And let's just thank God that our church survived a year as a church plan. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for creating this idea of Horizon Community Church, for putting it inside of me and helping birth this church into existence. Lord, we are so grateful for everything that you've done, and we can point to miraculous things where you provided a place for us to meet, Lord, or you provided the right people to help us to accomplish things, the opportunities you've given us in the community, the doors you've opened up for us as a small little church to sit in places we don't belong and to minister in ways that are way beyond our size and our budget and our capacity. And Lord, the only one we can point to to thank for all these things is you. Lord, no one looks at this church and says, wow, they have it all figured out. They have talented people and they're super rich. No wonder why they're around. People can look at us and know one thing. There must be a God because that's the only reason they're still here. And God, we just want to thank you for what you've done in Horizon. And Lord, we ask you to do greater things than these in the days ahead. We thank you for the gear that you've given us, but we look forward to the gears that you will give. And God, I pray that you will make us a faithful people who will celebrate the God things that you do in our hearts, in our minds, and in our midst. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So the last few weeks we've been talking about the Bible, and we've just really been talking about what the Bible is, how do we use it, and then we're going to talk about in a few weeks, why should we care? Is this thing supernatural? Is it trustworthy? But right now, we're right in the midst of how do we use this book? Because we have a lot of people in our world today who maybe throw up some Bible verses, or they flip open a Bible, or they mention the Bible, and you're like, somehow that just doesn't seem to line up with what I think Jesus was about. Like, how they're using it appears to be wrong. And so we're talking about the right ways to use it and the wrong ways to use it. Now, when you read a newspaper, the same way that you read a novel? Yes. No. Okay, you would. <laughs> you wouldn't read it at all. Okay, would you read a novel the same way you read a diary? No, you, you approach them differently because you recognize when you see them, you're like, oh, those are different things. And so you would approach them differently. 
In fact, they each look a little bit differently, right? We recognize a newspaper because it's made out of newsprint, right? We're like, oh, it's that real cheap paper because they're going to print a lot of them. And so we approach it a certain way. And the same thing with a novel, like it's bound and has a front and back and has a flashy cover. And um, we know this is a novel because of how it looks. And if someone hands you a journal or a diary or something, you're like, oh, okay, I know what this is because of the way that it looks. So we approach different, different formats of writing in different ways because we recognize that they're different. The only problem is when we come to the Bible, there's all kinds of different types of writing in here, but it's all bound up in one package. And so we think we're going to approach all of it the same way. If the Bible was actually um, presented to us in all its pieces, it would look like DNA results. It would look like a letter from a criminal in prison. It would look like a poem. It would look like a diary. It would look like a collection of fables. It would look like the Constitution and sermon notes and eyewitness statements and song lyrics. It would be all these different things. And so when you opened it up, you would just say, oh, this is song lyrics. So I'm going to approach it that way. But how we're given the Bible is it's all in one package. And so sometimes we flip it open and we don't know, is this a letter written from a guy in prison? Is this somebody telling me a story that has a message in it? Is this a song lyric? Like, what am I reading? And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand the genre or the type of literature that we're reading in the Bible, we're going to make some mistakes when it comes to understanding what it's saying and applying it to our life. Now, a lot of times people will ask something like, is this true? Though they simply want to know, like, is this passage true? And um, th there's a little bit of issue. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the question of can we trust the Bible? And I think overwhelmingly we can, and I'll discuss some of those things in a few weeks. But I think a lot of times when we're looking at this, we're simply looking at um, what part of this is literal truth rather than what part of this may be conveying truth in a different poetic way. What do I mean by that? If you say the meeting is upstairs and the meeting is downstairs, I went to a meeting this week and they had some signs up. It was a training um, and um, I walked in with a friend of mine and there was a sign through the doorway. We walked in and there were stairs up and down, no signs which way to go. And we were like, guess you just guess one. We guessed down because we figured it'd be easier to walk down than up. And so we went down and it was actually down there. But imagine if someone told us the meeting's upstairs and it was actually downstairs. That would not be true. That would be false, right? But what if they said that the meeting is in the dungeon? You're like, does this place literally have a dungeon? No, they're probably making a reference to downstairs, doesn't have as many windows, it's darker down there, the basement, you know, is the, the dungeon. Is what they said untrue because there's not a dungeon down there? No, we understand what they're saying because we understand how conversation happens. We understand how language is used, right? But somehow, when we come to the Bible, a lot of times we forget about how language is used and we think the, the Bible is going to present things differently. So if a, a newspaper presents things in one way, we recognize whether or not they're true or false. We recognize that a fictional story may be telling us something that didn't actually happen <clears throat> excuse me, but it may actually be conveying something that's true. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, right? They're fictional stories, they're fantasy stories, but they teach us about love and sacrifice and ultimately about God. So, all that to be said, when we pick up the Bible and open it up, we need to recognize and look for 
what are we trying to understand out of this? What is it trying to say? What is it talking about? How should we approach it differently? Because it's a different type of literature. We can't just open up the Bible and think this whole thing is saying the same thing in the same way. I think it's telling one cohesive message, but in different places, it's telling it in different ways. It's using different genres, different types of literature to tell the same message. So some of us and some of the people in our culture and what I really believe are some of the worst misuses of the Bible are due because people or happen because people pick up the Bible and they don't consider the genre of the literature that they're reading. For example, and I'll give you an example so that we, this goes from just a uh, theoretical conversation down to a practical one. Because my undergrad, this is just, uh, I'm just going to let you know, my undergrad was in English and Bible, so I can lean way on the English side and everybody out here will be asleep. So in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 2, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament, it says this, It is better to, be, it is better to die than to be born. It's better to weep and grieve than celebrate and party because we're all going to die, so there's no point ignoring it. Don't celebrate. Weep and grieve. Now, there are some religious sects who don't celebrate birthdays because of this Bible verse. And if you ask them, why do you do that? They'd say, because of the Bible. And they'd go to the Bible and they'd show you the verse, and it says right here, it says, do not celebrate your birth. Do not have a party. And you're like, oh, man, you're right. That's in the Bible. Like, what do I do with that? They're missing the point of where this passage is found. And if we miss the point of where the passage is found, we'll make bad application for our life. If you don't understand what you're reading, you'll miss the point and you'll make bad application. So what is Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is really a diary. It's a diary about this man. He's like, I've got it all. I'm rich. I'm intelligent. I've got women. I've got fame. I've got everything. He lives it up, and he's like, it doesn't satisfy. He's like, I'll give away everything, and I'll be the lowest, most dejected person. He's like, that doesn't satisfy. And so he's like, I'll try to achieve greatness, and he builds great things and achieves things, and he's like, doesn't satisfy. And we follow this diary entry of him trying everything in life, and this is at a really low point in the diary where he says, life is stupid and pointless and worthless. Sometimes I'll hear people say this. They'll say, there's nothing new under the sun. That's something that he says here in Ecclesiastes. How about the internet? That's new, right? Is the Bible wrong because it says there's nothing new under the sun? No, it's telling us in this passage that this guy is working through the meaning of life and he's at such a low point in depression where he says, nothing matters. Everything seems the same to me. Every day is the same. Nothing feels new. And so when people take some of these passages and don't recognize the context that it's in, they don't understand the type of literature it is, they end up using the passage incorrectly. By the end of the diary, he comes to terms with what he's feeling, and this is how he ends the whole thing. He says, we should fear God and obey him because God wants what is best for our life. This is the best and most fulfilling life we can live, to know God and to love him. That's how the whole thing ends. But if you go through the middle, he's working through this story. He's working through these emotions. He's working through this life of depression and success and failure. 
So he comes to the end of it, and we're like, oh, okay, I understand what the Bible is trying to teach me now. But if you just pull out one passage, and you don't understand that it's a diary, we're on a journey with this guy, then we're going to end up coming to some wrong resolutions, some wrong conclusions about what he's saying. So, is it true in Ecclesiastes 7.2? Well, there's probably some moments in your life where that's felt true. It felt true for him in that moment. The Bible's not saying, though, that we should never celebrate. In fact, if you look at the rest of the Bible, it clearly indicates we should celebrate over and over and over again. But if you recognize, oh, this is a diary entry, I'm reading someone's personal, intimate, emotional journey, then it helps you understand some of these passages. So you see, why is that even in the Bible then? Well, has there ever been a moment where you felt like dying would be better than living? I know there's been some moments like that for me. Maybe after a night of heavy drinking and that next morning you're like, oh man, I'd rather die. Or maybe after a really stressful situation where you think I'd rather die than get up in front of those people and speak. Or maybe after getting a medical report where you're like, it'd be better to be dead than have to go through this surgery. Or maybe after a heartbreak. And so what we find is the Bible is including things that we're going to experience so that when you're going through those things, you can follow along on this journey and say, hey, I can come to the same conclusion. The purpose of life is to know God and to love him. So my, my grandmother, she only had a sixth grade education. She was from Kentucky. She was raised in a log cabin, no running water, no electricity. As soon as she could move out, she moved up to Pittsburgh and got a job and got away from her family. I think it was like 14 kids or something. I mean, huge Kentucky family. Very simple, sweet lady. Um, and here's what she used to tell me. She's like, the only people who can understand the Bible, pastors, priests, because simple people like us, we can't understand. And so she would, she'd get going, get fired up about something, and she'd say, it's in your Bible. It's in the Bible somewhere. And she has a super Kentucky accent. And so she would, she'd start saying something. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like, you're not. She's like, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible somewhere. And that was her, her cover. She's like, I know it's in there. Just listen to me. Just do what I say because it's in the Bible. And it used to crack me up because she'd say some things. And I'm like, I know that's not in the Bible. Like, that's crazy. But a lot of people operate like this. They're like, oh, as long as it's in the Bible somewhere, we're supposed to do it. Rape and murder are in the Bible. That doesn't mean the Bible encourages rape and murder. In fact, it says not to do those things. But just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's something we're supposed to do. There's so many people who make bad application from the Bible because they're like, it's in the Bible, so I'm supposed to do it. Look at the context. Look at the type of literature. What's going on here? Just because someone does something in the Bible doesn't mean you're supposed to do it Two, understand what's going on in the context and the culture. See, genre helps us understand literature. It helps us understand why that type of literature is in the Bible. And the type of literature tells us something about how it is used. Now, at the beginning, remember I said that the Bible includes DNA test results? <coughs> and you were probably like, what? That's not in the Bible. You're crazy, Alex. Well, they're not test results from Ancestry.com, but they are a genealogy. They are essentially so that the Jewish people could trace their heritage back to when the first promise was given to Abraham and where they fit into that promise. See, a lot of times when we pick up the Bible, we open the book of Numbers, and it's just this guy had this kid who had this kid who had this kid who had this kid who had this kid. We're like, 
why is this in the Bible? This is so boring. Or you open up to Matthew chapter 1, and they're like, this is the lineage of Jesus. And it just says, this person had this kid, and this person had this kid. And we're like, this is not doing anything for me today as I have a fight with my spouse and as I have a, a big project to finish at work. You're like, why is this in here? Well, we don't tend to be as fascinated with other people's DNA results as they are. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever seen someone who gets their DNA results back and they're like, I'm 1% Siberian. And you're like, okay, what even is that? Like, I don't care. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. To the Jewish people, these genealogies were a way, they didn't have DNA testing, but it was a way for them to recognize their place in this bigger story about the Messiah, the bigger story about Jesus. It was a way to say, I'm part of this special people who are going to be a special platform for God's special person who's going to announce his presence to the world. And so they read those passages excitedly because the fathers would read to the sons and the daughters and say, here's where we fit into the story that's about God. And so those passages that we read and we're like, names I can't pronounce, names I can't pronounce, names I can't pronounce. To the Jewish people, these were their way of being a part of what God was doing. If you found out in your DNA test that you were related to George Washington, you'd probably be excited. This was a way for them all to recognize how they were related to Abraham and related to the promise God made to them as a people. So how about poems? I mentioned that the, the Bible is, has poems in it, and you probably thought, wait a minute, Alex, I've flipped open the Bible a few times. I haven't seen anything rhyme. There have been no rhyming poems in here, so there cannot be poetry in here. It's very Western of us to rhyme our poetry. That's a Western development. Hebrew poetry did not rhyme. But it, poetry, and once again, I'm leaning back on my English degree here, and I took lots of classes on poetry. They, uh, poetry does not mean that it rhymes. It means that it uses sound and sense and imagery to convey emotion. And so poetic Hebrew, Hebrew poetry used sound and words that sounded similar, and it uses your senses and images to try to convey emotion. In fact, I read that 27% of the Bible is poetry. That means if you just randomly opened up your Bible one in four times, you would probably hit upon a poem. Now, I don't know about you, but most modern people don't sit around and read poetry. And what that means is most of us are not engaged about how to read something that's poetically true and not just propositionally true. You say, Alex, what does that mean? What are the differences? Well, a propositional truth is either true or false. For instance, if I say, my wife has two eyes, you count them, one, two, that's true. That's propositional truth. If I say, my wife has two gray eyes, that's propositional truth. You can look at it, it's observable, it's two, one, two, count them, you look at them, it's a color gray, boom. Poetic truth would be something like this. My wife has two eyes that are like a stormy sea at sunset. Now is that true? Are they stormy seas at sunset? Is that what her eyes are like? Well, that poetic truth conveys something about the situation, but even more than that, it conveys what the writer is feeling about the situation. If I say my wife has two gray eyes, you have no idea how I feel about my wife. But if I say my wife's eyes are like stormy seas at sunset, all of a sudden there's an intimacy 
and there's an emotion that comes into play. And a lot of times we approach all truth in the Bible as propositional truth. It's either true or false. It's either this or that. But sometimes the Bible is conveying poetic truth. And we see this over and over again in the Bible where God is trying to express emotion and we're trying to, like really cold, sterile, scientific Western minds, we're trying to just break it apart and like, just tell me what the truth is. Just tell me the kernel of knowledge I need to move on. And God's like, no, 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 I want you to linger in this poem. So when I took a poetry class in college, uh, they would make us read the poem out loud. And it wasn't the first time. We'd had to read it out loud multiple times and linger over the musicality of the words. And that's what God's trying to do so many times in this. He wants us to linger in the emotion of the passage, not just say, okay, this is the right theology and move on. So when I was being ordained uh, as a pastor, I, there was a gathering of older pastors and older men who gathered around me and they were going to ordain me into the ministry and say, you know what, we believe God has called you to pastor. And they begin to grill me and ask me questions about my character and my beliefs and my theology. And they sit around, you sit around in this room and they ask you all these questions for, um, I think mine only lasted about an hour, but sometimes people will go hours and hours and hours. And um, one of the guys in there, he asked me, he says, a lot of you young guys don't take the Bible literally. Do you take the Bible literally? I'm like, I always love when somebody starts the phrase, a lot of you young folks. And I'm like, hmm. So I asked him this. I said, have you ever worshipped a door? And I'm sure he's like, this kid's an idiot, you know? And he was like, no, of course I haven't worshipped a door. And what I told him was, I take the Bible literally unless it's clearly using imagery. And why I asked him if he worshipped a door was because in John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. Like, none of you have ever walked up to a door and said, that's a picture of Jesus right there. Jesus, how are you doing? Like, we know, right? When we read that, we recognize Jesus isn't saying he's a door. He's saying he's the way to God. He's expressing a poetic truth. He's telling us something beyond just saying, you can only get to God through me. There were places where he said that, but here he's choosing to use imagery to express that. I take the Bible literally where it is clearly being literal, but the Bible, as all great works of literature do, uses multiple points of imagery in its um, writing. For instance, the Bible uses metaphor, like the one I just used, I am a door, is a metaphor. It's a picture to convey a point. The Bible also uses simile. Jesus loved similes. He would often use a simile. Similes use like or as, or um, uh, for instance, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard, a mustard seed. It's a comparison to convey a point. Many times it's comparing two things that you would never think to compare. Like the kingdom of Jesus, his rule and reign, he's comparing to a little tiny seed. That's a weird comparison. It's a simile. An idiom, that's a weird cultural saying, such as when we say it's raining cats and dogs, People, like if they come from another country, English isn't their first language, they'd be like, what? Are you crazy? Like dogs and cats are falling out of the sky? That wouldn't happen. And Jesus used some of these as well. We see when he talks about putting new wine into old wineskins. That's a local idiom, a cultural saying to convey a point. Hyperbole. Um, that's when I walk in and I say, Darby's craft stuff is everywhere. 
It's really not everywhere. It's actually just on one table, but it feels like it's everywhere. And so I'm exaggerating a statement to convey a point. And we see this in the Bible sometimes, when there is an exaggerated statement in order to convey an emotion. So this doesn't make any of these statements untrue. Like, but what we have to realize is sometimes the Bible is using this imagery language in the way that we use language all the time. We say these kind of things all the time. And somehow when we get to the Bible, though, we don't expect it to talk like us and to be written like we write. We expect the Bible to record things differently than the language of everyday people. But we have to remember that God used everyday people to write it and they used everyday language to write it. And so we should expect imagery, we should expect metaphor, we should expect poetry, and we often build unhealthy doctrines by developing propositional truths from poetic statements. We develop unhealthy doctrines by developing propositional truths from poetic statements. For instance, the Bible will sometimes you say something poetically, and then you'll see someone who's trying to develop a doctrine to define what they think God is like from that. And I'm like, he's trying to convey an emotion here, not just a theological textbook, um, you know, heading. Now, our tendency is to gravitate to certain types of literature and not others. For instance, some of you might read the newspaper, some of you never read the newspaper. Some of you only read novels, you'd never read song lyrics. I like fiction, I like leadership books, I hate biographies. If someone hands me a biography, I'm like, I'm not gonna read that. I don't wanna read about their life. Let me know what they taught. Let me hear their ideas. Now you might be the opposite. I know some people love to read biographies. They hate to read a book of the person's ideas. And it was the same thing in Jesus's day. In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, this is what it says. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, being an expert in the law, asked a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, even inside the Bible itself, it acknowledges that it has different genres. It has different types of literature within itself. In fact, if you look at Jesus' teaching, he repeatedly refers to different sections of the Old Testament. And here we see that the Pharisees refer to the law, and Jesus refers to the law and the prophets. The Jewish religious leaders separated the Old Testament into three major parts. They had the Torah, which they said was teaching. They had the Nevin, which was the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which was the writings. And poetry was in there, Ecclesiastes, some of those. And so they would break them up, and they would separate them out by their worth in their minds. In fact, you see here that the Pharisees, they mention what is the greatest law in the law. What is the greatest command in the law? And Jesus responds, this is the greatest command in the law and the prophets. He essentially said, you were forgetting part of the Old Testament. You were only focused on one genre and you were ignoring the others. Now, I've mentioned this passage before as we've studied about what the Bible is, right? This is the part where Jesus said, you think the Bible is a rule book. 
And that's why they were focused on the law, because with a rule book, with commands, they could be like, we're winning, we're keeping more commands than you, we're beating you. And Jesus says, no, you have it all wrong. It's about relationships. It's not just about keeping these religious laws. The Sadducees had just been outsmarted by Jesus, and now the Pharisees come up to trap him, and they're like, what's the most important uh, rule, what's the most important command in the law? And Jesus really subtly reminds them, it's a love letter, not a rule book, but then he goes on and he says, this is the most important command in the law and the prophets. What he was doing so subtly was, you forgot part of the Bible because you were so fixated on one type of literature, you ignored the other parts. They wanted to read the Constitution that gave them authority and power and ignore the poems about knowing God and the prophets that challenged their self-righteousness. See, the, the law established the Jewish people as a nation. We have to remember, this was back before there was a United Nations. This was back before countries came into existence. And so the law was not only a religious document, but it was also like their constitution. It was their bill of rights. It was what it meant to be a Jewish nation. And they were fixated on that because that's what empowered them as religious leaders. And just like them, we have a tendency to fixate on certain parts of the Bible and ignore other parts of the Bible. We have a tendency to fix on the parts that we like or the parts that maybe we're most familiar with and ignore the other parts. I know there's some people who, they're like, I love the Psalms. <coughs> and the Psalms are great. But there's more to the Bible than just the Psalms. Or there's people who are like, I love the New Testament because it's about the church. And that's awesome, but there's more to the Bible than just the New Testament. Or maybe they only read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the stories of Jesus, and that's awesome. You need to understand the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus, but that's not the whole Bible. And we have a tendency, like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees, to fixate on a certain type of literature in the Bible and ignore the rest of it, to not see it in its full context. So I want you to experiment some this week. As Jesus has called us to live and love like he did, to freely uh, accept his gift to become a student of the way that he lived and loved, he used the Old Testament to introduce people to himself. And many times we've become so fixated on the New Testament, we completely ignore the Old Testament. I have a tendency to do this, where I'll get busy looking at the letters that Paul wrote from prison to the church, and I'll ignore the message of Jesus that's strung throughout the Old Testament. So, in conclusion, as we talk about what are we going to do with this, what are we going to take away from this, this week, I want you to think about what you're reading. When you open up the Bible, when you pull up the Bible app and it's the verse of the day, where is that verse found at? What is its context? What is its genre? Does it come from a poem? Should I be looking at this with imagery and poetic truth in mind? Does this come from a letter written from prison and show I should be expecting the prisoner to have a certain state of mind? Is it an eyewitness account? Is it someone recording their place in this bigger story about God? Is it a diary? Is it a story told within the Bible to convey a point? You know, uh, there was a passage where David, King David, he commits adultery and then he murders the husband to cover it up and a prophet comes to him and says let me tell you a story about sheep and he told him a story about sheep that story was not a real story but it was a story to convey a point and so you have to understand where the passage is found and what's going on and what the writer is trying to convey 
And then once you think about where this is written, how does that affect how I read it? If this is an eyewitness account, does it change how I read it versus a poem or song lyrics? And then finally, think about how you can read in new places that you would normally avoid. For me, sometimes it's good to just go to a minor prophet and be like, I don't even remember what this minor prophet is about. And, um, and by the way, minor prophet just means it's one of the smaller prophet books in the Old Testament. Major prophets just mean they're longer. So it's finding one of the shorter ones in the Old Testament and just saying, I'm going to read this and be re reminded about who God is and what he wants from me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how robust it is and so full of life and meaning and purpose. And God, we're so grateful that you can speak to us in the New Testament, you can speak to us in the Old Testament, you can speak to us in passages we're familiar with and passages we've never read before. But God, I pray that you will teach us to be students of your word, that we won't just rush in to learn some truth and believe, but Lord, we will linger in the text until we find you. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.